G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's wonderful to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of another great Australian sportsman. And this man was the world champion in the glamour event of his chosen profession, the 100 metres freestyle. His name is James Magnuson. You know him well. James, good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Peter. How do we find you at the moment? I suppose you're uh, you're in preparation mode for the Commonwealth Games. Uh, it's around about six months away, but it'll be here before we know it. Yeah, I'm in the middle of really hard work at the moment. Um, head down, bum up, getting the laps done. Um, just about to head back to my hometown of Port Macquarie for a couple of weeks to do some training up there in a, in a nice environment. So everything's tracking really nicely at the moment. How important, James, is it with the repetitive nature of training, and we hear a lot about the black line, how important is it that you're in an environment that you're happy with? Because, I mean, pools are pools, but if you're in a place where you're comfortable and it's your hometown and you're feeling good, I guess that makes training just that little bit easier. Yeah, the environment is really important. And uh, the past year or so I've been training um, by myself. I've got my coach, obviously, but don't have any training partners. So um, it's really important to turn up to the pool in the right headspace every day. Uh, and, and the environment the in can really affect that. So going home to port um, just takes out probably an hour to two hours of travel every day, um, lets me relax a bit and um, spend a bit of time with, with friends and family. So what's the technical difference of training by yourself compared to training with a squad? Um, look, I guess the toughest thing is not having someone to, to pace yourself off. Uh, you've got to be very intrinsically motivated um, I, I guess there's some pros and cons. The pros being I can kind of dictate the, the energy and the mood of the session. If I'm in a good mood and, and I'm feeling motivated, then um, it, it should be a good session. But the, the cons, I guess, is um, if I'm struggling a bit mentally, I've really got to try and amp up that energy myself, and, and that can be tough sometimes. So if you are struggling mentally, uh, how difficult is it to get out of bed in the mornings and I know that it's part of your profession but to get up at those ungodly hours that you've been doing for the last however many years yeah it can be pretty tough I mean you kind of do get in the grind and get used to it a little but there's definitely some days that are tougher than others but you've just got to keep reminding yourself of that end goal um, and the reason that you're doing it what time does the alarm go off, James? Oh, it's not too bad for me. Most mornings was around 6.37. That's kind of my current schedule, but the past sort of 11 or 12 years, most mornings have been 4.30. Oh, yeah, you never get used to it. I actually filled in doing a bit of breakfast radio at various times and I never got used to the alarm going off at that time of the morning. I guess when you're doing it uh, day in, day out, week in, week out, that you do get used to it a little bit. But do you ever 100% get used to that time of the morning? No, I don't think so. I think I can categorically say that I'm not a morning person. Um, I've never really 
button around it. I talked about the black line, James, where you often hear the swimmers talking about it, and especially when they get to the end of their careers. When you're in the pool, what sort of thoughts are going through your head to keep yourself fresh and to keep yourself away from staring at that black line all the time? Is there a, a mental routine that you have just to try and keep your, your mind ticking over and your mind alert rather than just go into automatic pilot? Uh, for me, I focus on a lot of uh, smaller things that I'm doing within each lap, whether that be you know how many kicks I do underwater off the wall, what my turn looks and feels like, how my stroke is. Um, I'm always trying to focus on those little technical things um, and we change those focuses week to week depending on where I'm at. Um, but then outside of that, when I'm doing the longer, more boring stuff, um, you know, I sing songs in my head, um, think about what I've got to do that day, um, just try and distract myself from that kind of monotony of swimming up and down. One thing I want to touch on with you, James, is life away from the pool. And that's something that you are involved uh, with at the moment with Van Heusen. And it is um, setting yourself up, I guess, for life in uh, other ways, apart from just being a swimmer. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I've built relationships with a lot of brands and companies over my career. Um, and I continue to look for, for good fits um, for me personally, brands that I feel I can align myself with and have good values, have good values, and you know are aligned with other people that are like-minded. Um, for instance, Van Heusen's also working with uh, Mitchell Stark and Kurt Fernley, guys that I've had a chance to hang out with a little bit over the past few few weeks and um, have similar goals and mindsets to me. Kurt Fernley is an amazing man, isn't he? He's just inspirational. Every time you see him do what he does or speak about what he does, he's quite an extraordinary Australian. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, I hadn't really had much of a chance to, to talk with him in the past, and so to get that opportunity and to hear his story and to hear he, what he's overcome to be where he is now is uh, very humbling when you look at your own career. He's certainly an amazing athlete and person. And for those of us south of the border, Cyril Rioli is also another ambassador for Van Heusen, so you've got a fair bit of talent on the Van Heusen team at the moment. Yeah, it's not too shabby a lineup, is it? When you look at the likes of Grant Hackett, and I don't want to single him out, but is it a cautionary tale for you when you see a man who, at the top of his profession, had just everything going for him and was obviously brilliant at what he did, but then life has been challenging for him. As a fellow swimmer, is that a cautionary tale for you when you see something like that that has unfolded for Hackey? Yeah, 100%. I think the thing with that, that I notice with some of these athletes who, who struggle after sport is that they come from these um, dictatorship-type regimes where um, they're doing ridiculous hours and kilometres in the pool and um, you know, basically being worn down um, by the sport, um, I think I've been a little bit luckier in that um, you know I've had some really good uh, coaches and mentors who've understood me both personally and as an athlete, um, and I think that's left me in a better headspace throughout my career. And I certainly don't see um, swimming as as a chore or something that um, I, I dislike doing or something that I'm. You know, opposed to, I quite enjoy my swimming. I've quite enjoyed 
my career um, and, and hopefully that leaves me in a better headspace at the end of it. You said you're coming towards the twilight part of your career. You're still a very young man at 26, but 26 in swimming terms is not that young. Uh, we've seen a lot of people well and truly end their career by the age of 26. Have you got an end date in mind, James? Are you looking at Tokyo? Are you, uh, do you have a particular time frame in mind or do you just feel the body and um, listen to it? Yeah, look, I think... Um, Early in my career, I didn't always want to be a swimmer um, and I hadn't always planned on, on being a professional swimmer. So it was tough for me early in my career to sort of look beyond Rio. Now I am beyond Rio. It, it, it's tough to look four years ahead to Tokyo. My immediate goal is obviously the Commonwealth Games next year in Australia. Um, and once those games are over and, and the results are on the board, um, be those good, bad or indifferent, I'll, I'll take take stock of, of, of how that's gone, of, of how the preparation has been, of how my body feels, how I am mentally. Um, and if I think I can push on for another two years, then yeah, I'll, I'll definitely go to Tokyo. But, um, you know, if I'm content with what I've done and um, feel like the body hasn't got any more to give, uh, then then I'll call it a day. But, you know, I'd only be 29 for Tokyo and, and that's that's not a huge stretch. Internationally, that's not so old. Um, within Australia, we we definitely seem to have a shorter lifespan in the sport. But you know, I'll, I'll take stock after after Commonwealth Games and and make some big decisions then. You said, James, you didn't want to be a professional swimmer as a kid when you were growing up in Port Macquarie. I guess uh, what was your big sporting ambition? To be honest, I didn't have huge sporting ambitions. Uh, Growing up in a, in a small country town, having goals to, to, to make an Olympics or to become a professional athlete seem a little bit unrealistic and, and people around me definitely were, were quick to um, confirm those ideas. Um, not, not my family or friends, but, um, you know, teachers and, and, and sort of people in town are quick to tell you that, that making an Olympics or being a professional swimmer is, is an unrealistic ambition. So I like the idea of it. I just never thought it was possible. Um, I more saw myself as probably moving to Sydney, going to university and, and then getting an office job. So what changed that? Was it people telling you that you couldn't do it? Are you the type that makes you more determined when people say you can't do something? Um, I think the first glimpse I, I got of a, a potential career in swimming was when I was about 16 years old. Um, I made a national youth team and it was in a room with other swimmers on that team that uh, I think the head coach at the time was Lee Nugent and he said, look around the room and, and within this room, one in five of you We'll, we'll go on to make an Olympic Games. And it was at that stage it kind of hit home. I'm not that far from, from making it, and it doesn't seem that impossible. It, it was still a long way away and seemed a little unrealistic, but um, it, it gave me a bit of hope. And we'll talk about your foray into international competition on the other side of the break. One thing I do want to touch on with you, you mentioned the Commonwealth Games coming up on the Gold Coast. You decided to forego the World Championships in Budapest this year to try and get your body right for the Com Games. You're going there as defending champion. It's going to be a hot hundred though, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think it could almost be the, uh, the best race of the whole Games um, across any sport to have Kyle Chalmers, Olympic champion, myself, world champion and Commonwealth champion, and then Cameron McAvoy, Australian champion. It's a pretty red-hot field and, and should be a really exciting race. So 
for each of us, it's it's as big as a world championships because we know to, to win that, we're going to have to go really quick. And you throw in Canadians and the Brits into the mix and it becomes a very hot race. Yeah, look, there's, there's definitely increasing competition from around the world these days. A lot of people don't quite un- understand the scale of the sport at the moment. If, if you look back as... as far as Sydney or Athens, it just seemed to be a race between Australia and America in terms of a worldwide event. But nowadays, there's, there's challenges coming from every corner of the world and it's, it's really increased the professionalism and the, I guess, competition of the sport as a whole. And just the last word on the Com Games, James. Uh, you were in Delhi, you're in Glasgow. Uh, the perennial conversation before Com Games is... Are they relevant anymore? Does it really mean anything? Well, once they actually start and the and the city and the nation gets involved, then we see how relevant they are. I still think that they've got a big place on the world stage, and I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, both times I've been to the Commonwealth Games have been a huge spectacle, um, both for the host nation and, and for Australia watching back home. It gives us a great sense of pride to... Um, win medals in, in those of, in those uh, competitions, and I think it's also important for the sports involved. It, it is a stepping stone towards the next Olympic Games. Um, we don't get as much exposure to international competition down here in Australia as, as some other countries, um, and and in Europe and and in the Americas, they are having their own competition similar to, to the Commonwealth Games and getting really good racing experience out of that. So. The Commonwealth Games is is a vital part of of our preparation. The Gold Coast is all still ahead and we're going to look back when we come back on the other side of the break to some of your great achievements, those world championships and also the achievements at the Olympic Games as well. James Magnusson is my special guest on this edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year. More with James after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have dual world champion James Magnuson as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. James, you talked about the first step when, when you were sitting in the room with uh, all of those swimmers and that uh, one in five was perhaps going to go on and become an Olympian. When was your first inkling that you had what it took to match it with the very best in the world at that glamour event, the 100 metres freestyle? That's a tough one. Probably not until my first world championships. I, f- I felt like in 2010, I made the Commonwealth Games as part of the relay team and, and we won a gold, which was really exciting. And I did the Pan Pacific Championships and World Short Course Championships as well that year. But it, it felt like I was just a participant in those events. I, I wasn't a real contender. The big guys um, on the world stage still seemed a little bit far away. Um, it wasn't until 2011 um, when I swam the lead-off leg of, of the men's 4x100 relay and ended up doing a, a really fast time in that event and beating guys like Michael Phelps and Elaine Bernard. It was suddenly a, a realisation that you know I was on the world stage. I, I'd announced myself and um, not only that, I'd done the fastest time ever in, in a textile suit. And that was being thrown in the spotlight a little, I guess. It was a shock to me and probably everyone around me. But, um, you know, it, it was a really exciting time. And, and 
you know, the start of, of something big for me. You went 47-49, so you'd eclipse Peter Van den Hoogenband's time there. Did you get out of the pool and have a look at the splits and think, could that be right? Or did it feel like 47-49 <laughs> to you? Well, in the relay, the times kind of flash up and, and are gone again quite quickly. So I finished, um, looked to my left and looked to my right and saw that no one was around me. Um, and was a little bit shocked. I didn't think I was that far ahead. I didn't get a chance to look at the scoreboard. So basically I went around to the side of the pool, hopped out and walked back to, the, to my other teammates who I, th- I think it was Eamon Sullivan and Matt Abood um, at the time. Matt Target was in the pool swimming. And Eamon just looked at me and said, you just went 47.4. I was like, no, you're kidding. And he said, no, you seriously did. And they both had this look of, sheer terror on their faces because we were out in front leading and the rest of the world was chasing us and, and they knew they had a really big job to do but um, it, it wasn't until Eamon told me that I actually realised how fast I'd gone. So the clock in your head, we, I often deal with uh, the great jockeys and they say the greatest jockeys have a clock in their head. Do swimmers have the same? Did you feel on that day that you'd gone quick, maybe not that quick, but did you feel as though that was a really quick one? It was funny. It felt almost effortless Um, and a lot of people across a lot of sports do say their best performances come when it feels effortless. Leading into that competition I'd actually had pneumonia and hadn't been training for a few weeks so I really had no idea where I was at. Um, I mean I felt rested because I hadn't trained but uh, I I also didn't know what 47 seconds felt like because I'd never swum that fast before so um, I I knew it was a good race personally because I'd... um, I'd beaten everybody else quite comfortably, but I certainly had no idea it was that fast. Since then, you know, I have an understanding and an idea of what swimming 47 seconds feels like now, and I know what a good performance feels like now, but at that young stage of my career, uh, I had no idea. So you produce this incredible performance, everyone's raving about it, and four days later comes the time to do it as an individual in the 100-metre freestyle final. Now, I've... James had the pleasure of calling a few Olympic 100 metre finals on the track and those blokes are full of bravado and bluster and of course Usain's trying to psych everyone out and everyone's trying to psych everyone out. Are the 100 metre freestylers the same as the 100 metre sprinters? Is there a bit of bluff and bluster and a bit of uh, mind games goes on when you're on the blocks for that event? Yeah there definitely is. I think the best thing for me was ignorance. Going into that World Championships, I had no pressure on me. There was no hype. Even though there was a lot going on back home between that relay and and my individual swim, I was oblivious to it all. I went into that race without any hesitation. I I wasn't nervous. I didn't feel like there was any pressure on me. And there was people trying to psych me out and, and get in my grill a bit. But, you know, I've I've got a, a rugby league background, so that certainly didn't worry me at all because it's not like we were going to go out there and run into each other. We were just <laughs> going to swim in our own lane. So it really didn't phase me at all. And I think um, some similarities that I can draw to, to that race would be if you look at the Rio Olympics and the preparation that Kyle Chalmers had mm. it was pretty much identical. You know, he went into that Olympic final with no pressure, no expectations. He was oblivious to, to everything that was going on back home and and uh, when you look at it we, we basically got the, the same result just in different events. So when you say there was a lot going on back home you're in Shanghai you're a world away what was going on back home that you were oblivious to? Um, well 
what happened at the time was uh, they weren't broadcasting um, any of the races on prime time on Channel 10. We were with Channel 10 at the time. Mm. Um, basically, we were in a similar time zone to Australia, being in China, um, but they were basically showing the swimming at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, um, you know, after MASH reruns or something. But because Australia had never won a gold medal in the men's 100 freestyle at a world championships before, they decided to play my race and my race alone on primetime television um, at about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night on Channel 10, um, the, the only swimming race they did that for. So had I known that, that probably would have um, added a little bit of pressure and and expectation. But uh, everyone managed to keep that quiet from me. And it wasn't until the day after that I found out that that they'd done that. And that was huge exposure-wise for me. You and the great racehorse Black Caviar have got something in common then, James, because I remember that Channel 7 once, I think they broke into a a football coverage to televise one of her races during the (laughs) half-time break. So there you go. You and Black Caviar in the same boat. Yeah, it's a pretty illustrious company. It is, yes. Now, let's get back to that 100 final and all of the stuff that was going on that you're oblivious to. You stand up on the blocks. You said there's a bit of psyching out going on. After the first 50 metres of that World Championship final, how did you think you were going? I was pretty confident that I, that I had the race won after 50 metres. Um, my race plan was essentially to, to take it out not slowly, but but comfortably, um, and, and be feeling like I've got a lot of a lot of petrol left in the tank at, at that 50 meter turn. And the past year or so, I'd been used to turning up to a body length behind the other swimmers. Um, and at that race, I turned probably about at the knees of the guys leading. Um, and I came off that turn, did my underwater, and and started swimming, and, and knew that I had plenty of energy left in the tank, um, and that provided that the guys in front of me weren't feeling amazing that that I'd have I'd had the legs to to reel them in. All right, I talked about the World Championship victory. You planned the race perfectly. You win in 47-63 and all of a sudden you're the world champion. Did that in your mind put a target on your back? Did you become uh the hunted rather than the hunter after that? Yeah, look, I think so. I think it was the first time in my life that I'd ever won a big event. You know, I won my first national title leading into that world championship. So I hadn't even gone into a national um, event as as the favourite. I'd, I'd never gone into any event as a favourite. And I did enjoy that um, for a period. But leading into an Olympic Games, it's it's quite hard to explain to someone that hasn't experienced it. Going into an Olympic Games in the blue ribbon event as the favourite is uh, is something that yeah you can't explain to someone um, unless they've experienced it. But the pressure and expectation is is like something you, you couldn't imagine, and that was definitely a learning curve for me and something that I probably struggled with a bit at the time, but. You know, it's something that I think has put me in good stead for the rest of my life because nothing really phases me after that. Let's talk some more about the build-up to London and London itself when we come back on the other side of the break. The dual world champion James Magnuson is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Serving families across Victoria for more than 80 years. We'll have more with James on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. 
Hope you're enjoying our chat with dual world champion James Magnuson. James, we talked about that world championship victory and the pressure that it put on you. I guess the minute that you touched the wall in Shanghai, it would have been human nature to think about what might happen in London one year down the track. That pressure that you spoke about, can you in some way identify with what Cathy Freeman went through? I know it was different because she was in front of her home crowd, but that 12 months of pressure, they say pressure builds diamonds and you say that it stood you in good stead later in life, but it must have been almost unbearable at times. Yeah, look, it was it was tough. I think the toughest thing for me was trying to get in a good headspace outside of swimming. Uh, while ever I was in the pool training um, or, or competing in the lead-up to London, um, I felt like there was a weight off my shoulders that I could just do what I was best at and focus on, on what I could control. But there was the times around that that I think I really struggled with. You know, I sort of put all this pressure and expectation on myself as well as what was expected of me from the public. You know, I wasn't going out on weekends or socialising. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't drink for probably a 12-month period leading into London. You know, I'd do extra swimming sessions on my own, extra weight sessions, doing everything that I thought would, would help me perform better but just wasn't allowing me to live a normal life. You know, I'd come home from training of a night and see three, four, five TV advertisements of myself while I'm trying to watch TV and, and, and relax. Um, you know, I'd, I'd go to bed thinking about the Olympics. I'd wake up thinking about it. It was just probably an unhealthy obsession that I developed leading into that Olympic Games and, and something that really caught up with me by the time I got there. There's a fine line between uh, unshakable self-belief and arrogance. As you look back four years ago, do you think that you were misunderstood because you had a lot of self-belief or are you now four years down the track mature enough to say, well, perhaps I did take it just a little bit too far? No, look... I I definitely don't have any regrets in that in that sense. Do I think I was arrogant? No, definitely not. The reason being, I was backing up what I was saying in the pool the whole way leading up to that um, Olympic Games. I was swimming faster and faster, working harder and harder. At no point did I rest on my laurels and think that it was my right or that I deserved to win. I, I worked as hard as I could in, in the whole lead up to that. The thing that people need to understand is that to win an event, a sprint event in an individual sport, you have to believe that you're the best in the world before you perform, whether that is intrinsically, which I've learned to do now, or extrinsically, which many other people from many countries do. If you look at you know, Usain Bolt, for example, most sprinters in that 100-metre event, um, if you look at the best basketball players, soccer players, um, football players in the world, they're not quiet, shy, unassuming guys. They're yeah. big personalities and they perform on the big stages and, and that really is what you've got to do. I don't look back and think I was arrogant. I think what I was saying was over the top. It's just a case of, you know, I was saying what I believed. I thought I could win and, and I expressed that when I was asked that. And it's, you know, I guess a little unfortunate in some cases that we have this culture of tall poppy syndrome in Australia when if someone doesn't quite achieve what they set out to or, you know, if, if someone tells it how it is, we're very quick to tear that person down. And I've learnt my lesson there and I, I certainly have gone about my, my business in a very different way ever since. Um, but, you know, I, I don't regret what I did and, and had the result been 
one one hundredth of a second different, you know, I, I wouldn't have learned that lesson, and I'd, I'd probably still conduct myself in the same way today. I think you've just perfectly explained in the last couple of minutes exactly that fine line that I was talking about, and and you've elaborated beautifully on that. You talked about that one hundredth of a second. To get to an Olympic Games is a great achievement. To make a final of an Olympic Games is a wonderful achievement in itself. To win a medal is a remarkable achievement. To win a silver medal is an exceptional achievement. Did it feel like an exceptional achievement? And were you, second part of the question, James, were you disappointed with the reaction to you winning a silver medal? Because there were certain people who said that you failed. Now, how can you fail when you finish second at the Olympic Games? Yeah, look, as soon as I looked up at, at the at the board, um, I never really, and, and to this day, I haven't thought much about the one one hundredth of a second. Um, it, you know, there's margins like that all the time in swimming. It, it happens. I've won races by that amount and, and, and I've lost races by that amount. Um, I initially saw it as a failure myself um, and, and I did so for probably at least a couple of years following that Olympic Games. Um, I, I didn't care what other people said. Um, you know, I care about the opinions of my friends and family and anyone outside that inner circle um, can say what they like. That's not for me to waste my time worrying about that. Um, I, I personally saw it as a failure because I had one goal and one goal only at that Olympic Games and, and that was to win gold. Um, and, and when I didn't do that, that that kind of rocked my world a bit. Um, I guess it, it, it was a bit of a crisis of identity. Um, I saw myself as, as the fastest man in the world, and when that was taken away from me momentarily, um, I, I really struggled to come to terms with that. Um, I think leading into that Olympic Games, I'd only ever thought about um, the potential outcomes and the way my life would change if I won gold. Um, I'd, I'd never really taken the chance to, to, to think about any other potential outcome. Um, so that was uh, really tough for me to cope with personally. Um, and there's not a lot of people that you can talk to about that who've had similar experiences who, mm. can, who can guide you through that and tell you how to cope with that. Um, and, and, you know, on top of that, there was a lot of fallout from London um, regarding other things as well. So, um, yeah, really tough period of my life and, and um, I guess looking back on it, character building, um, but, but definitely something I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. As a collective, was the swimming team at times a little bit out of control in London, as the reports have indicated? No, couldn't couldn't be any further from the truth. You know, I've been a part of team sports. Um, I've been a part of of teams that have been out of control, um, not not swimming teams, but um, I can tell you now, if you sat down and spoke to each of those people on that team individually, that there's not the personalities or the characters to get out of control. Um, to become a professional swimmer and to do what we do, <clears throat> you have to be disciplined. Um, you have to be, you know, have your whole life under control. It's not the sort of personality type that lends itself to being, um, you know, displaying the types of behaviour that, that people re were reporting on. Um, it, it just didn't happen. It, it didn't then, it doesn't now, and I haven't seen it at any stage in my career. So um, that whole thing became wildly out of 
um, blown out of proportion and, and the things being reported were just, you know, for me, knowing what was going on inside the team and knowing what went on in, in certain scenarios that, that were reported on, um, it, it was mind-blowing that, that people could just write essentially lies about us um, and, and get away with it. Let's fast forward another year to a, a, um, a positive after all of the negatives that you've spoken about that had been reported. And in your own mind, as you said, you believed that you'd failed by one hundredth of a second, but you'd failed. So to win the world championship again in 2013 in Barcelona, was that one of your greatest achievements to be able to put all of that aside in the previous 12 months and to come out on top of the world again? Yeah, that that was my biggest achievement um, in my mind. Um, I got back from that Olympics and um, that was the first thing I thought of. I, I have to redeem myself by winning that world championship next year. Um, I, I couldn't think far enough forward towards Rio um, and, and obviously there are extenuating circum- circumstances there around injury and stuff where I didn't um, get the opportunity to, to redeem myself at an Olympic Games. But for me personally, I had to win that World Championships. Um, and I, I trained so hard leading up to that World Championships that, um, that, that I gave myself the best possible chance of doing that. Um, and by the time I got to that World Championships, um, you know, I was really fighting some mental demons that I didn't probably know were there to the extent that they were. Um, but I'd prepared so well for that World Championships that, that there was only ever going to be one outcome. 47.71 was the time it took for that outcome to happen in the 100 metres freestyle. What were the mental demons that you were fighting, James, at that time? I think it was it was fear. Um, I'd, I'd developed this fear after London of failure and, and the repercussions that failure has and the, the retaliation that the media and the public can have to, to, to failure. Um, and that really played strongly on my mind leading into that World Championships. Um, you know, I, I had a great preparation for that World Championships. I'd raced really fast in the lead up to it and I had kind of um, put myself back on, on that pedestal and, and put a target on my back again going into that World Championships um, as the fastest in the world. Um and and that definitely created some um, some fear, yeah. Well, it obviously was good for you because you were back on top of the world again. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're fast running out of time. I wish we had more time to talk, but we'll talk a little bit about Rio and we'll also talk about uh, life going ahead for James Magnuson. When we come back on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, our final segment after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with James Magnuson. James, looking back on Rio and all of the problems that you had with your shoulder, and I guess uh, shoulders are an occupational hazard for 100-metre sprinters, uh, freestylers. <laughs> um, did the body just not play games with, or did it not cooperate with you when you got to Rio? Was that the problem, that you were just never quite right? Yeah, that's right. I had... Uh... I had the shoulder reconstruction a year before the Olympic Games, um, hoping that it would be it would be right in that time frame. Um, and you 
know, I think I, I gave myself the best possible chance to, to get right. I, I worked as hard as I could through my rehab, through getting back into training, um, but it, it just never um, came back to, to the way it was b- before um, that, that surgery. Um, you know, I think when you talk to surgeons and you talk to, to medical experts, they they tell you that you know you can get back to. Um, to, to full range of motion and full strength, but there's a difference between recovering from a surgery and getting back the movement in that shoulder and the strength in that shoulder and having that shoulder swim, you know, the fastest in the world. Um, it, it, it takes time, and it's probably taken a, a good full two years to feel um, like that shoulder's back to where it needs to be and to get some confidence back in that shoulder. What was the mood like amongst the swim team in Rio? Because it turned out in results terms to be a disappointing games even though we won 10 medals three of them gold but are we in some ways James are we ruined by our uh, previous results and the expectations of being one of the dominant nations or the dominant nation in swimming do we sort of uh, are we cruel by those previous results that we perhaps expect too much because after all Olympics and world championships don't grow on trees yeah Yes and no. Um, I think the big differences between Rio and London were um, leading into to London, we only had two gold medals at the previous World Championships. Um, so there weren't huge expectations on the team as a whole. Um, for me personally, those World Championship golds were mine. So I personally had a lot of pressure, but the team as a whole didn't. Leading into Rio, uh, we had, I think, eight or nine gold medals at the previous world championships. Um, So things were looking really bright. Uh, There was a lot of expectation on the team as a whole because, um, you know, a lot of journalists are quick to tally up those world championship gold golds as, as Olympic golds in the, in the next year. So, um, you know, I I think the team was looking really good leading into, to Rio. um, But, Having experienced uh, an Olympic Games previously, um, you can't explain to someone the the magnitude of of an Olympic Games and and the difference between, um, you know, racing uh, at a World Championships uh, as an unknown and going into an Olympics as a favourite. And that's what happened with with a lot of the people on our team. And, um, you know, similar to what happened to me in London, a lot of them struggled with that pressure and expectation. Um, but that's always going to happen at, at any Olympic Games. You're never going to convert as many World Championship golds into Olympic golds. Um, you can only try and get a, a better percentage each Olympics. And um, I think leading towards Tokyo, that's that's probably what the focus will be, um, converting as many of those World Championship golds as we can into Olympic golds without having the expectation that everyone will, will, will directly convert. Tokyo does seem a long way away, three years away, but the Gold Coast not that far away. As we head towards the Gold Coast, what's your relationship like with the head coach at the moment? Because you have been outspoken with some of the tactics that they use in the relays. Are you content with um, what you said about the tactics and uh, how is your relationship with the coach? Yeah, absolutely. I'm content. Um, My relationship is is fine. Um, You know, I knew Jaco 
uh, well before he became um, Australian head coach and, and we've always had a great relationship and I get along with him really well. Um, you know, he's trained 100 metre freestylers his, his whole coaching career so he knows how we tick and, um, you know, we get along really well because of that. Um, you know, my comments uh, weren't... Um, weren't out of line because what I was saying was uh, what I'd said in the lead up to Rio and during and post Rio so uh, it wasn't a shock to anyone um, around me that they were my opinions and um, their opinions shared widely by the whole swimming community so um, you know my relationship with Jaco remains really good and, and um you know, whenever he's in Sydney, we catch up and, um, yeah, everything's fine there. And just finally, we've spoken a lot about the expectations on the Australian swimming team because of all of the greats who've gone there previously. Do you think that the glory days, the golden years for Australian swimming are again achievable? Uh, is it just around the corner, another golden age? Look, I think you have to define a golden age differently to what you did in the past. Um, we spoke about earlier... The, the number of countries that are putting so much money and resources into swimming. It's no longer a two-horse race when it comes to world swimming. Um, the glory days in terms of us going head-to-head -to -head to, with America in the, the medal tally uh, may never come again because we are facing so much competition from other countries, from China, from Russia, from Europe, um, from South America even as a result of, of, of the Rio Games. Um, we're getting challenged from all around the world and the standard of swimming is so much higher than it was um, if you look 10, 20 years ago. So to compare the team today to the team back then is almost unfair. If you look at the times individually, a lot of the guys are swimming faster than, than some of those greats ever did but there is so much competition from the rest of the world. So I think we really need to change the measuring stick. Um, we'll move the measuring stick in terms of what is a great team and what is a successful team. And, um, you know, I think that, that, that we can get great results at future Olympics, but we can't compare those results that we're getting um, to, to that of 2000 um, and probably 2004, which were our most successful Olympics. James, in this day and age of social media and 24-hour news cycle, it's very easy to get an impression of someone without actually really knowing them. And that's the glory of this program, that we get to sit down and have a chat, which I've really enjoyed for the last hour or so, as we get to know James Magnuson, the man, as much as James Magnuson, the athlete. Congratulations on what you've achieved. Good luck on the Gold Coast. We'll see you up there for a bit of sunshine in six months' time and hopefully maybe even in Tokyo in three years' time. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Peter. James Magnuson joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we'll be back with another edition with another great Australian sports person same time next week on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.